Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand the other side just a little bit better. Our mission, to make government contracting better, one contract at a time. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition Solutions. Skyway helps companies of all sizes know more, do more, and win more in the government market. Visit skywayacquisition.com to get started. Today's episode is about the different roles on the government acquisition team and the industry proposal team. Let's get started. Hey, Kevin. Today we're going to talk about the people in the acquisition process. What do those people do on the the government side and the industry side? We are. When we were contracting officers, we didn't see everything that was happening on the industry side. And there are a lot of people who impact each other but don't ever actually interact with each other. So we're going to talk about how those people interact with each other. And as a note, this is a pre-award process. We're talking about this before the RFP is released. So this, these are the people who are involved before the contract is awarded. So from an acquisition time zone perspective, we're talking like the requirement zone, market research zone, way like before the RFP, the final RFP is actually released. Correct. Okay, on the government side of the equation, there's a there's an acquisition team, and it, it all starts with the user, the, the person who has the requirement. For example, if you're buying an aircraft like we did, the, the whole Air Force Two thing that we've told many stories of, the users were the pilots. They were the crew. They were the maintainers. These are the folks that have a requirement. There's also a program manager usually involved on the government side, and this is the person who manages the, the technical side of the acquisition. So the example there with the aircraft is the program manager is responsible for taking all of these different requirements and documenting them, making sure that they all, they all don't conflict. You know, what is the range of the aircraft? How many pilots can it handle? Does it have a berth for pilots to be able to rest? I mean, all that stuff that they all want, he's got to organize it all and work with the contracting officer to turn it into a contract eventually. There's also finance managers on the government side. You have to remember that government money flows a little bit differently than than private industry money. There could be different types of money on one program, and you only have so much money for each type of thing you're buying. You only have so much money in the budget to buy a product and so much money in the budget to maintain that product once it's delivered. So instead of just money on the industry side, you might have limitations because of the type on the government side. And that's what the finance managers are there to help with. Yeah, we talked about that on podcast 19 where we, we explained the colors of money. Like you said, it's not just money. It's, it's, a, it's a whole skill set. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who else, is, who else is touching this thing? There, uh, there's tons of people to review it, depending on the size, of course. For a small acquisition, maybe not so many people. But for a large acquisition, there are policy people. There's lawyers involved. There's there's a at at some you know large agencies. There's an acquisition center of excellence where there's a whole crew of people that help the individual uh, program offices do their their source selections. So they're the center of excellence. And, and by the way, there's Joey air quotes around that help word there, depending on who you ask. <laughs> And, and the, the example here is that this is this is again as a as a as a taxpayer you want this as a as a manager of systems you may think it's getting in your way but the reality is the acquisition center of excellence you know all sarcasm aside 
These are people who have seen lots of different source selections, lots of different things work and lots of things not work. So it could be things like the evaluation criteria that you're using. You know what? It blew up in our faces when we bought this product over here. Let's make sure it doesn't blow up in our faces here. That's the intent. So that so the contracting officer, the program manager, everybody's running their stuff through this acquisition center of excellence, which is, that's this, not in the name for every single agency, but in some agencies, that's what they call it. And it, it can take longer. And it, those people have a vote. And they they'll often call it a peer review. I think the Air Force calls it a peer review. There you have somebody who is at your level, who's been a program manager, contracting officer, acquisition executive, whatever, looking at your stuff. And that can take time. And those things, they happen on the industry side too. I don't know if they're called, <laughs> you may be a better judge of what they're called, but it's that everybody needs to look at these things when the, when the numbers get big enough. So lots of reviewers. So we're talking about reviewers. Think about just, if you're the, the contract specialist, there might be a contracting officer that reviews the stuff that you're putting together for the acquisition. There might be a branch chief. There might be an office contracting lead. It might go up to the contracting policy staff or even for large things, the director of contracts for the the entire base or agency that that you're working for. So there, there could be lots of levels of reviewers involved. And that doesn't even include the source selection team. So the people we just talked about as reviewers, these are people outside of, of the bubble, I guess we'll say. They're, they're like the, the second concentric circle. <laughs> and so inside the circle, you have the users, the people who are actually going to have a vote in which company wins because they're touching the stuff. Like So an example of the technical evaluators. The, so the story here would be – Yeah, so who's, uh, who techni- who's going to evaluate the source selection, right? Who, who's going to read the proposals and write the – actual evaluations of each of the criteria. That's what you're talking about, right? Right. So the example would be when I bought some equipment for, for Special Operations Command. We had the Navy SEALs, the, the Army Rangers, the people who are going to be using this equipment, they helped write the actual requirement. Then it comes back as a proposal, and now they're the evaluators. These are the people who they're reading through the proposals saying, okay, they say it weighs this much. I'm not comfortable with it weighing that much or it's this big or my personal favorite. We tried it on and we tested it and it doesn't work. You know, th- that's what I mean by touching. These are people that are touching the stuff. Whereas the, the reviewers we just talked about, like the lawyer's never going to put on the piece of equipment or shoot it or, you know, they're, they're, they're more theoretical. Whereas the, in, when you do this right, the technical evaluators are either touching, feeling, whatever, or in the case of like software, they understand the software enough to go, yeah, that coding they're talking about is not going to work. And you know, these are people that get it at the ground level. So government usually has to evaluate past performance. We've talked about that as well. It, on a large source selection, there could be a past performance assessment group. And if you want to acronym that, that's it's, <laughs> acronymize it's, it. it's the PRAG. <laughs> yeah, so what, ha- what often happens is it, that the, con- the contract specialist usually ends up being in charge of uh, the past performance assessment group because they're the ones who, in theory, would have documented the past performance under previous contracts. So I've gotten calls by other people. I don't know if you ever got this as much in your NRO days because NRO is kind of a smaller, tighter organization. But on the Air Force side, I would get calls on a pretty regular basis from people who were running a PRAG and they were contract specialists who were running a PRAG and saying, hey, you worked with this company on this other contract. This is, this is our we, – we need your feedback on, you know, on how well did you do or how well they performed. And the reason I think it's difficult to outsource is because you can't, you don't, you can't have a contractor giving a vote on – 
how well a company did. You have to talk to people who actually manage the contract. And that so tends to by contractor, you mean like the, the acquisition consultants in the, the ACE or whatever? Right. I, yeah, and so and I, and they I, can review the the CPARs, the, the stuff that's in the government files that, you know, the official reporting on past performance. Um, they could collect information from other – they could, you know, be making calls to other contracting offices and saying what's your – you know, what's your experience with this contractor? Yeah, but I mean, the, the person who has the vote is usually going to be the, my, again, my experience, I, because I I don't know why we, I don't know who else you would ask, because you could ask the program manager, but a lot, a lot of times they've moved on. Um, so I got calls, like I, I was at Peterson Air Force Base, and I'd been off a contract for a while, but they, they looked my name up in the system, and it was a contract I had at Patrick, and they called me about it and said, hey, how, how did this, this contractor perform? So my, my experience has been that the contracting officers are the ones who are usually called for those votes, but that's just my personal experience. I don't know if it's – I don't, I don't want to globalize that. Right. Another member of the source selection team, there's generally a pricing person involved. So this could be the contracting officer or a contracting specialist or maybe in, in larger organizations or maybe actual pricing department that's, that their job is to evaluate pricing when it comes in. And, and depending on the size of the contract and whether or not it has cost type cleanse, that can either be a relatively small part of the project or it could be the linchpin. Because de- determining like most probable cost, that's something a pricer's got to do, and that's not something that happens you know in two hours. <laughs> that's a project. So yeah, they're they're definitely a player. It's just that depending on the acquisition strategy, they can right. So in, in the sealed bid kind of situation, where you're you're, it's arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> for that, yeah. And the last role we're ta- we'll talk about on the, the government side for the source selection team, the acquisition consultant. And in, in the systems world, in the larger acquisitions world, this is somebody that works in that, that acquisition center of excellence or, or source selection facility. Usually it's uh, a CETA, a, a, a contractor there to assist the government. And it's usually um, lots of those people have been around a long time and seen a lot of source selection and as they work in the ace in the the source selection help place <laughs> they help they cycle through a ton of source selections as a contracting officer you're not going to get the reps on source selections that someone that's there just to to be a consultant is going to do you in in some places you have to wait a year or two to get to a source selection you know where if there's lots of contract administration going on you might not get to do a systems kind of acquisition very often. In other places, you may do have two or three source selections going at once all the time. But regardless, acquisition consultants are there to help with those more complicated source selections. And they're a, usually a great source of, of history and lessons learned because they have all the scars from everybody else's source selections and, and help the team get through the process with the least drama. So a personal example would be Shelly Hall is one of, one of our contracting officer team members here at Skyway, and she spent the last what, 25 years of her career doing source selections, right? Toward the end of her career, she became what's called a procurement analyst. And procurement analyst is somebody that just, that's a government person who does what you just described. However, there aren't that many of her to go around, and that's why a lot of them end up being CETA. And that's why in some agencies, they're exclusively contractor support. Yeah. So the fact is, there's, if you see the term procurement analyst, that's, in theory, somebody who's had the reps. So that, that, to talk about you know, using the same language, 
there's a procurement analyst on the government side, and there may be a CETA support person who does the same thing with the same skill set that happens to be a contractor at, at different agencies. It depends on what agency we're talking about and the bandwidth that agency has of people with actual experience. And we talk about how that impacts uh, organizational conflict of interest in podcast number 55. Because <laughs> this is a great example of where that would be an issue. <laughs> Let's talk about the parallel roles on the industry side now. There's some roles that industry have has a, that just don't exist on the government side. And there's some that are very similar. On the industry side, there's a broad category of people under the, the business development title. These folks are looking ahead and helping to target the company's strategy on what types of acquisitions they're going to pursue – And they're tracking the opportunities that are out there to make sure that the company understands the schedule and the size and complexity of the different things that they could possibly bid on. Because we always talk about how many things the government is buying at once. You can't possibly bid on them all. So this is how you narrow it down. And it's referred to as as the pipeline. Yeah, and there there are two terms you'll hear for for this. There's the business developer or the the business development manager. And then there's a capture manager. And the simplest way for the government folks to understand this is that a business development person is throwing a wide net. What's out here? What can we do based on our skill set, based on the opportunities we want to actually start to to track? And then a capture manager is someone who picks a opportunity and opportunity and then puts together a team, starts to really capture that work. Now, a lot of small companies, it's the same. It could be the owner. (laughs) It could be one person doing all this stuff. But just so we understand what the terms are. These are the, the, the bigger the company, the, the larger the opportunity, the more specificity goes into the roles that they actually bring. Right. In a, in a small place, if you're, if you're a sole proprietor, you're going to be in charge of, of what your targeting strategy is. You're, you're going to be have, have to pay attention to what's out there to, to build your future pipeline and know what, to have a, an idea of what you might bid on when. You're going to have to do all those business development jobs and then – when it comes down to a specific acquisition, you're going to have to be the one that that puts together everything you need in order to submit a proposal. But in a really big company, there there could be individual people for each of these roles or there could be teams for each of these roles. There could be a team of people tracking a large company's multiple pipeline opportunities, lots of business development people, and a whole slew of capture people so that you can have multiple – potential bids going at once and for more discussion on targeting we have podcast number 16 (laughs) i've done my research for this episode this is fun so the role on the industry side that's most similar to that acquisition consultant that we just talked about is the proposal manager and a proposal manager again we'll start with a big company there they may have armies of well not armies they may have (laughs) lots of people right or or they may not i mean a lot of this is often outsourced uh for example it's outsourced to skyway we do a lot of this proposal management for people and it more importantly if you're a small and mid-sized company and you don't submit a lot of proposals you don't need or for that matter you can't afford (laughs) a full-time proposal manager right because what are they what are they doing when there's no proposals being written and a proposal manager we've talked about this before it's a specialized skill it's not something that if you treat it like an other duty as assigned, your proposals are not going to be great because there's a lot of things that it's an art and a science. And again, so like that acquisition consultant, they get the reps. They they see lots of RFPs. They write lots of proposals. They know all the little secrets that that the proposal writer people don't have a chance to to learn because they don't 
do it that many times. The proposal manager role is so important. Make sure that you assign someone to it. If, if it's a very, very small team or a very, very large team, someone has to be in charge and have the final say on here's how we're going to do this. They're, they are the ones in charge of the process flow of writing the proposal. And we talked a lot about that in podcasts 31 and 32, where we had Vicki Straharsky as a guest. Right, she, right. Proposal manager. She talked a lot about there's, it, it's not something you can just wing it. So, but, but to your point, there's got to be somebody who's in charge because in the end, you're submitting one document that once it's out of your hands, it's out of your hands. And there needs to be one person that's responsible for everything because it's that whole rule of if everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge. You get, and we've all seen proposals that if the proposal manager is, is not, driving the bus correctly it ends up driving into a tree <laughs> right and for, for a small proposal there could be one or two or three people putting this thing together and then it's not that hard but for a large proposal there could be 20 people writing there could be 50 there could be 100 people involved in writing the proposal that's hard to manage and, and even, let me give you some scale on it we had one that uh, the client one was an 800 million dollar contract right so was, i think it was like a 100 page proposal and there were like 25 different people touching this thing that Vicky was managing. Now, she's not managing them directly, but she's hurting the cats. Right. That's a lot of personality. So to your point, yeah, there could be a hundred people on some of the bigger stuff that you like satellites. I mean, how many parts are on a satellite? You know, it's a big, it, so yeah. So for the small business listeners, it's, it's more of an issue of you still got to understand you're hurting these cats. They still need to be able to see who's in charge. Even if it's only a 10 page proposal, you still got to be able to herd the cats properly. And the cats that you're herding, are the proposal writers, <laughs> right? Awesome. These these are these are the people if you know on the industry side, if you're if you're writing a proposal to deliver a software product, you're going to have software engineers, software developers writing the proposals. You're going to have systems engineers and architects writing proposal stuff. They might not be great writers. They might not understand the process but you need to get that information out of their brains and onto the page so it can be evaluated right and that's a big part of you know i'd say the capture manager is, is a part of that the proposal manager is a big part of making sure that all that information gets out of their heads yeah well said and that that, that is that is part of it that's art because to be able to get somebody who's a, a really highly technical engineer to be able to explain something in response to a, a part of an RFP that says, explain how you're going to do this in, in, in a way that a, for example, contracting officer or a evaluator who doesn't clearly understand the technology behind it can get it. That's, that's the proposal manager's job. And that's an art. <laughs> that's an art form. Yeah. So the proposal manager might not understand it either. Oftentimes doesn't actually, if you think about what they're doing. Right. They're, but they, they can get people that do understand it to say, hey, read this and make sure that this explains what the government is asking for correctly. Another role on the industry side, and we talked about government side, price analysis people. Someone has to put together the price on the industry side for simple things. Again, if you are the sole owner of a company and you are the entire back office, you're probably submitting a price proposal by yourself. But on large proposals, there's actually a pricer or a pricing team that puts together the price. And this is, can be complex stuff. It's a lot of times staring at spreadsheets or using something like ProPricer, and it's, it's not for the faint of heart. 
There's also potentially in large companies, there could be a team of, of people that evaluate the price to win. And these are like market analysts that, that they understand how your their company's pricing is put together. And they also have some competitive intelligence that they've collected on how other companies are going to put their price together. And they're there to give advice that after all this pricing is done, they're going to say, that's fine, but we think this company will come in at this price and this company will come in at this price based on all the information we've gathered and based on the answers that come out of this magic box that we've created. And, and that's a great example of if on, on a large acquisition, you know, big, okay, that, there's a consultant involved there. But even in the smaller ones, if that question isn't even being asked, that, that's dicey because you don't know how competitive you're going to be. And so I think that's question number 19 in the RFP score. It talks about how competitive are you going to be. It's like you need to be thinking about that, this pricing model, before you get to the final stage and go, oh, I'll throw in a price, and then you lose and you don't know why. That's right. part of this process. This is important. Yeah, it's like you know McDonald's has or had a dollar menu. If you come up with a great idea that we're going to have a $2 menu and sell the exact same stuff, you're probably not going to sell as many. <laughs> And who's, who's got the final say on the industry side? Well, it depends. It depends. It, again, with a, a small company, it may be the person that's writing the proposal and they're, they're writing it all and pricing it and submitting it. As, as company size scales up, the amount of approvals scales up, just like on the government side. So if, for a small business, it's, it's still – it's probably the, the owner or the president or whatever they're calling themselves of the small business. As business size goes up, it could be a business unit leader or it could go all the way up to the CEO. It depends on how big and important it is. But it's very, very similar to government in the amount of bureaucracy that's needed to, to put the final stamp of approval on something. Which, which leads me to an interesting point for, from the a small business set aside, in theory, should get done faster because the smaller companies have less infrastructure. But if you're doing, a, a, if you're doing this process through full and open competition – as a contracting officer, I didn't realize that opening this up to larger companies creates access to more layers on the industry side. Mm-hmm. So when you give them 15 days to turn something around, that may not even be possible for a large company because just like the government, you know, they, they have six or seven layers of – okay, that, that's just, even if it's three layers, you have people you have to convince of all of these steps of you know, should this, is this the right product to present? Is this the right pricing? Should, which past performance references can we use? I mean a lot of that stuff – those decisions aren't made by the guy with the pen in his hand. <laughs> They're made by the you know, person above him. So, and I didn't see that as clearly as a contracting officer. So when you open it up to full and open competition, understand that now you could have rather large businesses with rather large infrastructure. So the odds of getting a good proposal in 30 days, I don't know, do you, do you think that they diminish? <laughs> wait, get, no, it'll get, get, it'll get done. It'll get done. People will be up till three in the morning every night. <laughs> now, you know, it, again, the quality of the proposal – is directly linked to the amount of time that's given to write it, and there's a sweet spot. Too little time means that things get missed because there's just not time to to really think through and and write a story correctly for a proposal. But too much time means everything gets overthought, and then you lose track as well. So there there is a, a sweet spot for it, but but yes. Everything you do in the RFP as a government side is something that industry has to respond to. It's interesting. It reminds me of a a book I just read called Insanely Simple. It's the story of Apple. And one of the points the guy makes in there, he says, the perfect product comes when you have a good team, a great plan, and not quite enough time. 
<laughs> and I said, that's really kind of relevant to proposals. So anyway, just a little side. I thought you'd find that was funny. So we spent a lot of time babbling about who these different people are. Why is it so <laughs> important that everybody understands who these people are? And you, you always say government contracting is a team sport, right? Everybody needs to understand who those team members are so that they know who needs to be involved at each stage of the process. And not only who those people are, but what their roles are. You should understand your own role. You should also understand what the other roles are. And what, and what your counterpart's roles are and yeah. what, what, what takes the perception of what takes so long. <laughs> and why is, why is it taking the government this long to do this? Why does, it, why does the contractor always ask for an extension? It, a lot of those questions are answered by understanding the, the other, your counterpart's role. I guess we'll say it that way. And, and the logic here is that everyone can benefit from seeing each other's perspective, right? You can write a better requirement if you know how industry will answer it because you understand like where does the capture manager fit versus the proposal manager. I never actually met a proposal manager when I was a contracting officer. Why would I? Right. right? There's, think about that, right? And that's one of the fun parts is I'm, I'm giving a presentation to a bunch of proposal managers because they never interact with a contracting officer. But now they can probably write a better proposal because now they know what I'm thinking about. Again, going back to the mission of our podcast is to help each other, each side understand each other. This is a great example of that. Is these people are they're not they're impacting each other greatly. Section L and M is what a proposal manager and a proposal writer live by, but they never talk to the contracting officer and the program manager and the user probably who developed them. So understanding each other's roles makes this process go smoother. So specifically on the government side. Why should the government care about the the roles? So internally in the government, you need to make sure everyone is on the same page. You you can't build a requirements document without having the users involved. Well, you can, but you're not going to satisfy any user needs, right? You can't buy buy anything without money. So you got to have finance involved so you understand budget limitations, colors of money, all that stuff. You can't do a source selection unless you have the physical space to do it and the IT resources to do it. You have to understand who who do you talk to to make sure that you have a space carved out in order to evaluate all this paper that you're going to receive and so that you have computers to to upload all of the electronic documents to to evaluate. And you can't do a source selection without evaluators. You have to plan ahead for this kind of stuff, right? If you're going to ask 10 people to spend weeks evaluating proposals, those people have jobs. They have actual things they're supposed to do. So you can't show up at the last minute and say, all right, everybody take 10 weeks off from your real job and come evaluate stuff. You have to plan ahead so that all of the stuff flows properly. Yeah, and the story on this one would be we had a, a testing contract. And it came in, I think it was right after the holidays, and people were flying in to do a like a deep dive over a four-day period to review all the, I think we had like five proposals. Like you said, it's a, more often than not, it's another duty as assigned. And that's a scary place when you drop it on them. So then when the government, when the government team doesn't know what their schedule is going to be, that's how it ends up sliding and sliding and sliding and taking things like, again, raising my hand here, a year to get an evaluation done. So that's a lot about internally the government team. Externally, the government should care about this stuff because they, you need to understand who does what on the contractor side. You need to understand how writing your RFP impacts the number of people needed to write a proposal and therefore the cost and and who those people are that are writing the proposal. 
you, you need to understand who, who is a capture manager. If I'm a CEO, why should I talk to a capture manager that comes on? I know when I was a CEO, I thought capture manager, I thought that was a very offensive term. It's like, I am not a wild animal that needs to be ca- captured, right? It's You're snared. Right. And that, that, that's, that's what I felt like, right? From, from the government or sorry, from the industry side, it's, it's not like a derogatory term, right? They are there to capture new business and it's just what it is. But from the government side, I always thought you're not going to capture me. <laughs> I'm too nimble. <laughs> so that leads us to why should industry care? Who's in charge of what on the government side for, for very small source elections, the contracting officer has the power. The, the contracting officer is usually the source selection authority on small buys. I don't, I don't know what the, the threshold is for that. And it's probably different by agency, right? Yeah, it is. And, and some agencies, you may – even if it's a giant contract, you're still the source selection authority. And, and the bigger the acquisition, the more levels of reviewer involved and the higher up the source selection authority is. So in, you know, in the, the Air Force side, there, it could be the, a program executive officer if that term is still used or it could – the the director of the organization of the agency could be the source selection authority. So if you're, if you're on the industry side and you're trying to influence the acquisition, you might be talking to the wrong person who really doesn't have any power if you don't understand what those roles are. Here's a story. I had a, a roughly a $5 million contract. We did the source selection for her and, and I'd gone through, done the competitive range determination and we picked one. And as a source selection authority, I picked this this company. And one of the people, two or three levels of, of levels above the chain, didn't like this company as much, and basically said, "Well, you can't give them a contract." And again, this is one of those things. This is one of those moments as a contracting officer. I kind of had to pull the card. I'm like, "It's not your vote." Now that's hard to do. You got to have you know you have to have um, you beat in your chest kind of thing when a, when a colonel walks into your office and says, "I don't think we should give it to this company." And you got to show them. And again, you don't just say that. You show them in the, the evaluation criteria. You show them how they did everything. And it was a, he had a personal history of somebody that worked there. And you know, and, and again, he didn't know. He thought it was a good old boy network. As derogatory as that, that term may sound, but to him, he's like, "Well, I can come down. You work in my organization. I can come down and tell you this." And it just happens. It's like, no, there's a process here. And when we talked through it, and it was fine. But I mean, that stuff happens. Well, if your assumption. It's not just you being a jerk. I mean that that's that's a protest. It all ends badly if you if you don't award to them, and they submitted the the best proposal, at, you know, the best price. If, if you don't award them because someone doesn't like them, then you're going to get protested, and then you're going to lose, and then you're going to start all over. Yeah, and and a lot of this is if you're making if industry people are making decisions based on the fact that they've built this relationship with in this case the person that worked two levels above me, but I was a source selection authority. Again, I'm not trying to you know, swing this big ego around, but it, it actually happened. I mean, it's happened. That was the most extreme example, but it's happened a couple of times where that's that's understanding who's a source selection authority is a big deal. Yeah, and they don't always. The government doesn't usually tell industry who the source selection authority is. They can usually guess, but they, you you don't get that clearly. It's not usually announced. Correct. It's this <laughs> because they don't want industry coming in and bugging that person, right? Exactly. Particularly when it's a person who's two or three levels above. They got yeah. other stuff to do. Yeah, good point. Another reason industry should care about these roles is because you need to understand who is in charge of doing what in the proposal process. Who's going to write each section? Who's going to have the final say? Who's going to edit? Be the final editor on this? Who's going to do the the compliance matrix? Who's going to do the pricing? 
it's a stressful time. So a lack of clarity in who's going to do what and who's responsible for what can contribute to a complete meltdown. Yeah, the last thing you want is a meltdown at like two days <laughs> before the proposals do. Yeah, you have a proposal team who's under a lot of stress already and been locked in a room for a long time writing proposals, and then they come to blows right before the uh, right before you're ready to 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 go final with it. Disaster. It's an emotional time. So let's wrap this up by saying that the terms for the different roles. The, the exact descriptions and functions of the different roles, they can vary by agency, by company, and, and even by acquisition, depending on the size and complexity of it. But you still have to define who is going to do what on the government side and who is going to do what on the industry side. Yeah, and there's that planning ahead part. So You've got to be thinking about who's going to be doing what. Know that before you start. Know who's managing the proposal on, know who's in charge of the process from the industry side. Know who's going to be evaluating what parts. Know who's going to be running the prag. Plan that stuff out ahead of time so that, that you're not figuring it out. When yeah, on the industry side, make sure you follow your approval authorities and you know who has the final authority to send that thing out. And even if there's a final authority on paper that this person has the authority, make sure that it's not really their boss who has the, the behind-the-scenes actual approval of it all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think that's enough on this topic for today. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And if you like the CO Podcast, please tell a friend. That's the best way for us to help more people. Remember, we get a lot of our topics, most of our topics, in fact, from people who are listening to the podcast. So, if there's a topic that you think would be helpful, send me an email to paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com and we'll see what we can do. If you need more training on this kind of stuff, go to skywayacquisition.com. We also specialize in training, providing more detail and insight on these, these kind of topics. And if you'd like to help keep the podcast free and available to all, if you'd like to advertise is what I'm trying to say, send, send us a note. We appreciate the support. And it's great to be able to give people who are listening to the, the podcast access to services and software and things that we know will help. Them. It's, it's one of the many bonuses we didn't see coming a year ago when we started this. Thing. All right, Kevin. I'll talk to you later. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Remember, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, send me an email at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.